used to think success was something you had to be superhuman to achieve. That the successful were different from the rest of us. That you had to be born better than a normal human to achieve anything. But the successful are more similar to you and me than we thought. They're just real people. So I go talk with them. I'm Dakota O'Neill, and this is Real with O'Neill. Everybody. Uh, welcome to the first real episode of Real with O'Neill that has a guest in it. I'm here today with Gina Fox, who is a former professor, former alcoholic, professional clown, aerobics instructor, produce clerk, prospective sobriety coach, and all-around amazing person. How are you doing today, Gina? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well, as well as I can be. Uh, very happy to have you on the show. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. I'm, I love hearing that I'm amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, someone who's been through as much as you have and who's done as much as you have, like, there's not many other words for it than amazing. I'm so, flattered. Uh, <laughs> A little embarrassed, so, but flattered. So the whole point of this show, and, you know, we talked about this just a minute ago, the whole point of the show is talk about people's success and how they achieved it. And uh, yeah, let's just start with like, your childhood can you tell me what young Gina was like and what she was growing up around and what she went through um I was um I got it I don't want to start it I was born (laughs) (laughs) but technically yeah it really kind of started out just this this in in chaos um I was born in Washington DC in 1968 in the middle of the um, Civil War riots and um my mom said that that um, you know, she was pretty poor that they were traveling. My dad was running from Vietnam. He was AWOL. So he was running from Vietnam and she was running from her mom. Um, and, and so they just kind of traveled around, ended up in Washington, DC with her eight months, nine months pregnant with me. And, um, she said she could hear the bombs going off and, and, the riots in the streets as she was, you know, trying to, trying to live in her apartment. So yeah, from the earliest point in my life, um, there was a bit of chaos going on. Um, shortly after I was born, my dad was arrested for, from, from, you know, they caught up with him and he was arrested and my grandmother moved us back to California. And, um, she spent a few years with my dad and his, in his craziness but um, shortly divorced him and, and um, life went on. We spent some time in his hillbillies in, in Kentucky, uh, pretty poor, lived in a shack. I think the bonus of the shack is it didn't cost anything to live in. The bad part of the shack is it didn't have any doors. So, you, you know, in the middle some, of the- you lose some. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In the middle of the night, there'd be a chicken sleeping with my sister or eggs you know, laid on the couch or a snake someplace in the, in the house. Cause you know, we, we were hillbillies, right. um, did that for a few years and, um, ended up back in California. I've spent most of my life in California living, um, in government housing. At some point she was able to get a house, um, with my stepdad and, um, and then we just, you know, continued to, I continued to struggle. She, she started doing okay, but emotionally I was still struggling. And um, I think I just started being an intense adult real early in life. Well, uh, yeah, you said that it was a few years you were in that shack. About how old were you whenever y'all moved from the shack to uh, government housing? 
we lived there. I did kindergarten twice. Uh, okay. First grade twice. Yeah. Uh, the first I started the first year, first grade in Indiana, and then we left Indiana to move to Kentucky with my second dad. And she did not want to put me back in first grade. So there was some we finished off first grade, I, although I wasn't back in school, but we finished off first grade living um, with his family and then in the shack. And then I started first grade in another shack in Kentucky as well, but I made it through. So probably about two years okay. that we lived in Kentucky. Okay. Yeah. So. And then uh, you said you guys, you, your mom, she started doing better with, with your stepdad and whatnot. Well, where were they doing? Well, she was just, she had worked at a job that um, her pay was pretty good. You know, she was a single mom most of the time. And so she had three jobs and, um, so we didn't get a whole lot of her, but financially after time, she started doing better and was able to purchase a house. And that, that brought us a lot more stability. But, you know, by that time I was, I think 16 years old and um, I'd lost a lot of time with her. And, you know, as the oldest of two children, I was pretty You were essentially raising your younger sibling. Yeah, I, I, I hate to say it that way, you know, but there was a lot of, that I was responsible for. Yes, yes. You and know. you said that you were uh, you weren't doing so well emotionally at that time. No, um, I just kind of struggled with the um, the the work um, with being responsible at, at some point. So when I was in Kentucky we're going to have to backtrack a little bit. When I was in Kentucky at six years old, I was molested. Um, and I eliminated the memory from my mind. And when I hit 14, I was talking with some girlfriends and they were saying what their first sexual experience was and, and what they had said. And, and I just remembered, I just remembered. And, um, but I remembered it. I was alone remembering it. I don't know if that makes any sense. You know, I, I couldn't tell anyone. Uh, you oh, know. it does make sense. Whenever yeah. a repressed memory like that hits you, mm -hmm. especially about something so sensitive, it's, it's really hard to find anyone that you think will understand because you look around and you're like, there's no way anyone else I've ever met has been through anything like this. Right. There's and no see, you're younger at that time. Those things were just starting to come on things. Bill Donahue had a show and he was starting to talk about it. Oprah, I don't think had been out yet. Um, I don't know if Montel Williams had been out, Sally Jesse Rock. These shows were just starting to talk about it. So no one believed it was happening. And the weird thing is about that particular time is that they were attributing it to satanic cults. It's weird. Um, it, oh, yeah. Were... I've seen some of the clips from that where everything was about cults for like, what was it, like six, six seven years? Yes, yes. If you were molested as a child, you were either um, taken advantage of by satanic cult or satanic members or, you know, or or the, also there was problems with memory and they, you know, a lot of people were claiming that those, those memories were planted in your head by therapists. And so, um, you know, I had told my mom, but she didn't know what to believe, you know, so she didn't believe, but sometimes she did, but sometimes she didn't. And it just became something that I didn't talk about. And I ended up um, 
experimenting with some drugs around that time, you know, and going from a straight A student to a straight DF student. And that's so, no, emotionally, I was not doing well at that time. I was struggling to um, figure out who I was. Um, I wasn't struggling to stay sober at that point, but I mean, I don't think, uh, you know, a lot of my friends did a lot more drugs than I did, but you know, yeah, I was, I was numbing out a little bit, trying to connect or be part of the group with, um, with mostly just marijuana. I didn't drink alcohol then. I did try a few other things, but it was mostly just marijuana and, and not really caring about the grades. I, I kind of discovered that if I played stupid, I would fit in. So I ended up playing really stupid, getting poor grades. Um, and I, one of my teachers called me the secretary of the airhead club. Hmm. Um, and I played the role real well, you know, and got me a little bit of attention. So I held on to it as long as I could. Right. And, and that is probably the worst drug that, that people, young people can be on is, is that attention drug. Yeah, uh, especially yeah. nowadays, you know, you pointed out that I'm pretty young, especially nowadays with the rise of social media. I myself have seen it that like people will lose all semblance of who they used to be and who they could have been just trying to get a few more likes or just trying to gain a little bit of arbitrary recognition. Yeah, yeah. And that's exactly what I did because I was not for a long time. I mean, a long time, a lot more than that. I just kind of shifted my modes a little bit. I always said I code switch really well. You can put me in any group and I'll find a way to code switch. You know, right. I do great with teenagers. When I was teaching, I really fit in with that young adult group, you know, because I could code switch. And right. I think that's part of, part of, you know, the trauma. You, you learn how to, how to be in a group, but you're not always yourself it's uh it's a defense mechanism it's uh i can't remember what the actual scientific name for it but i've heard it called a uh, social chameleonism or something like that it's the sense that there are certain individuals out there and this usually happens to people who have controlling parents or or people who have parents that don't necessarily pay a whole lot of attention to them they learn how to pick up on cues really quickly mm -hmm. and switch their own behavior based on the behavior that's around them Yes. And a I lot like of, that term. I've not heard that term, social chameleonism. Chameleonism, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it's something that uh, I, I read about in high school. I, was, I took a lot of philosophy classes and a couple of uh, psychology classes. And uh, yeah, it, that's actually not super uncommon. Uh, if you could give any advice looking back now to yourself at that age, you know, with, with yourself being caught up in the drugs and the chameleonism and the feelings of, oh, I'm all alone and I'm destitute. Looking back on it now, what would you have done differently or what advice would you give yourself? Um, I, I'd like to say just be authentic. This is what I try to do now is be authentic. You know, I told you there's not a whole lot that's off limits. And, and I think because of what, I, what I'm trying to do, and who I'm trying to connect with and how it's just really important for me to be authentic. And, um, and then the big thing I also remember is that I am enough, you know, I am enough just the way I am. I am right here right now. I am enough just the way I am. 
Now, would I have followed that advice as a teenager? I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. We're, we're, you know, trying to be accepted and trying to fit in and trying to build our own self-esteem, you know, to tell a teenager you are enough. Some I know will get it. You know, I tried to raise my children that you can do anything you want. You know, you live in a you in an I can world. I can do this. But um, you know, as as we've talked about, um, I have one child who who uh, how do I say this? She um, is very reserved, mm-hmm. very reserved, and and I don't know if that you know I don't want to diagnose what she's going through, but I I I feel like some of that is that you know lack of. I can do this. What are they going to think of me if I, you know, so she's very reserved in that way. And then, um, as I told you earlier, before the show started, my, my son committed suicide and he clearly didn't think he was enough. So, um, and, and he was 24 years old when he did it. My daughter's 29, I think now. So to be 14 and be told you're okay, you're enough. You know, I don't know that I would have listened. Right. Or believed. Yeah. Oh, a lot of that has to do with stuff that can either be internal going on within a person, or it could be due to other external influences than, than just you. So mm-hmm. uh, aside from, you know, the generic, oh, it's not your fault type of advice. I want to, I want to say to you as someone who has struggled with suicidal thoughts myself in the past, it, it comes down to the person and, and them making a decision because no matter what caused you to feel that way, there is something you can do about it. And I yeah. don't mean to say that in a judgmental or a harsh way as in like, oh, he shouldn't have done what he did. What I mean by that is if you convince yourself that suicide is the only answer, it's the only one you'll ever see. And, and no yeah. outside force is going to change you from that until you change yourself from that. Right. right. And I want to say that in, the, in our short conversation, you've come across as nothing but a genuine and caring person. So, so I hope that you don't carry too much guilt with you over that it's hard not to you know I mean I look back um on how I raised him um and I know that there are extenuating circumstances that that I I really couldn't control I did the best that I could um my son was born with a a submucal cleft palate which is birth defect that that interfered with his ability to speak And so socially he was behind and he felt inept. Um, He couldn't hear very well, you know, and there were things that I did that, that both me and his father did that probably were very shameful for him that I wouldn't have had any idea that I was doing. So there is that guilt there, but, you know, um, I did the best I could. And he did one of the most amazing things. I was so proud of him for this. And that was about two years before he passed away. He admitted himself into a mental health hospital, um, long-term, not long-term. I don't know. He was there for about six weeks, but in-house help uh, because he knew that he had a problem. And, um, I was so proud of him. Who does that? You know, he's 22 years old and and he says, I I need help and I'm going to go to a place that I can get it. And, and I always thought that was probably the most bravest thing I've ever seen anyone do. But with all that and, and the help that he did get and the psychiatric help and the, you know, the medications that he was on for antidepressants and, um, for, you know, everything, 
he still wasn't able to get past the up and down moods. I have his journals and, and there'd be, you know, he'd write once every three or four weeks a month and he'd skip three or four months and then he'd write a lot. And it was, it was a happy post. I'm great. I'm doing well. And a sad post and then a happy post and then a sad post. And those up and downs were so sporadic, you know, you just, it would from one day to the next. And then um, the last month and a half, three or four months before he passed, that's exactly what we got was, you know, a happy post. And then in January, he wrote a suicide note. And then the post after that was a happy post. And then February 6th is when he was, when we found him. We think he, he died um, about three days before we found him. So, oh. but yeah, it was so up and down, you know, um, that um, my mom had seen him, I think the day he passed my mom and sister had gone to Mobile where he was living and they went out for ice cream and they said he was in such a good mood that he, um, he said, I think I want to come back and live with you. He was saving money. He wanted to buy a house. Work was going great. Everything was, he was just doing great. And then um, that was the last anyone had heard from him. So um, yeah. I know that uh, there's this thing uh usually uh roughly it generally takes place once someone has decided like picked a day mm -hmm. picked picked the method uh they get a feeling of euphoria mm -hmm. of relief of knowing that oh this isn't gonna last that much longer and i think that that could have been and it, and it really takes a toll on the people left behind because that they have the exact same feeling you have is oh we just yeah. saw him and he, and he seemed happier than ever this doesn't make sense how is he gone now and, and that's what it is is it's this yeah. it's that euphoria that that escapism almost of knowing yeah. that it's coming and, and so i'm very sorry for your loss and, and for what you've been through there uh i hope you know that you know like i said it's it's not any one person's fault and you know it seemed like even he didn't really know exactly how well, I he think felt he did. from moment to moment I think I think he did though I, you're right there's this euphoria which you make when you make a decision to do it it takes all the stress of whether or not you're going to do it I'd read that before right and I and because his suicide note was written weeks before he actually did it I, I'm certain that that's what happened so I do think he knew he was going to do it. Um, I don't know that he had picked a date or knew exactly when he had gotten to a fight um, with his girlfriend and, and it happened after that. And by the way, um, in case she happens to hear, I, I have no, it's not her. She didn't do it. You know, he just, he just did it. You know, he did right, what he right. did. Who, who, who fights? I fight with people all the time. I'm not going to go kill myself over it, you know? So this is, this is very clearly not her. Um, so you haven't heard from her since he passed? Actually, um, when he passed, I was still drinking when he passed and I did not blame her, but I did not trust myself not to not. So no, I didn't talk to her for a long time um, after he died because I did not want to say something or get angry or get out of, out of control with my emotions. And then after a while, it just became awkward to, you know, to reach out to her. And probably about four or five months ago, I did. 
and I have talked to her and um, told her that, no, I never blamed her. And we cried. Both of us cried a lot. And um, and she she called me mom and she says, this is it, this is so good to hear from you because she thought I did blame her. Um, and it, and, you know, there's part of me that wanted to, I guess, you know, right. I wanted to make sense of it, but I've never thought it was her. No, it was, he, he was already, um, going down. That already, road. Yeah. We'd already dealt with a lot. There were some signs even that this is, you know, how, what he might do, how, so long before even that, when he was still in school, there was some signs of that. So, yeah, I mean, you can't. You, you can look back and see that it's really hard to see it in the moment, especially from, and, and this is going to sound weird saying this. Uh, I'm not a parent yet. I do have a child on the way, but I'm not a parent yet. So this is going to sound really weird coming from me, but from my experience of watching other people be parents, it seems like there's one or two ways a parent can react to a bad sign. And it's either they'll take it way too far in a context where it's not really a bad sign. Mm-hmm. So you'll take like your parent will take like a joke that was supposed to actually mean nothing. And then they'll be like, are you OK? What's going on with you? Everything seems. And then they'll take a real sign and treat it like and it's nothing. Right. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, they're just being moody. Oh, they're just antisocial. Oh, teenagers are just like that. Like, But it's yeah. it's an actual. And so everyone makes that. Everyone makes those slips. You know what I mean? Yeah. Everyone, everyone ignores signs that shouldn't be ignored. And everyone jumps on signs that should be ignored. And so it's, you can't blame yourself. No one should blame themselves. She shouldn't blame herself. You know, you can look back and say, oh, well, this is a sign of that. And even looking back on it, you might not be right. You know what I mean? Like he could have just been having a bad day that day and not been thinking about it at all. Yeah. But uh, we got, which I don't mind because this was a very important topic for us to get closed on, but we got super duper off track. (laughs) Uh, yes. whenever we left off you were 16 and had just moved to uh state housing with your mom and stepfather i had been at state housing by the time i was 16 we had a house and um yeah yeah so um somewhere in the middle of and this is this is me <laughs> somewhere in the middle of all this my high school years i kind of freaked out and said i don't want to be this loser who's getting high all the time and getting bad grades and i went from straight d's and f's in a semester to straight a's and b's my counselor says you know gina don't worry about college you're you're not college material they took me out of all of my college prep courses and I think that just kind of freaked me out and I flipped I flipped I stopped smoking pot and I started getting straight A's and um and that was pretty much the route I had taken I met my my future husband and um you know we got married had two kids I did the perfect mom thing or tried to do the perfect mom thing I raised my kids I kept a clean house um I don't didn't feel like I was you know holding up this this image of not me I felt like it was me but um you know everything was great um my kids went to school full-time and I freaked out went to the college campus and said um okay now I don't know what I'm going to do during the days now that my sons this is literally I dropped my son off at kindergarten said what time do you want me to pick him up and they said oh no he'll go home on the bus with your older child 
And I said, oh God, what do I do now? I went to the college enrolled, came back home and said, I'm starting school tomorrow. <laughs> and um, yeah, my, my um, husband at the time said, um, okay, what are you gonna do with the kids? And I said, I don't know, I'll figure it out. <laughs> and um, I went from there and got my master's degree. And you got I, your master's in what now? I got um, a dual master's in literature and rhetorical composition okay. to teach. To, I could teach. I wanted to market myself. It wasn't a great college. I actually had been accepted at UC Davis, but um, at one point, but with moves and stuff, we no longer lived there. I pretty much picked a college that was as close as I could possibly go, um, you know, to where I live. But because it wasn't like a high, high, um, highly rated college, it wasn't a bad college. It was a California State University, but it just it didn't have a lot of options. Um, it was a farming town college. And so I thought if, to make myself marketable, I need as much as I could possibly get. And so I got decided to get a dual degree um, to teach both composition, which I had no desire to teach and literature, which I wanted to teach, but I knew that would be difficult. So um, that's what I did to market myself. And then I also did as many um, conferences and, and presentations. And I even um, led, I was the chair for our, our graduate conference at the college. And you know the whole idea was to make myself as desirable to other campuses as I possibly could be. Right. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is I hit an overachiever point. Yeah, you, you went from... Uh... You went from doing the least you could as a teenager to doing the most as an adult. Yes. Like you, yes. you said, I'm going to get a double master's and, and then I'm going to attend all of the events. Like tenacity honestly sounds like an understatement here. Like, yeah. you, you like that is a complete 180. That is yeah. a lot of success coming really quick. Yeah. I, yeah, I graduated summa cum laude with my BA. And I was two tenths of a point away from distinction with my master's. And the only reason that happened is because there was a course that I wanted to take that I knew I wouldn't get an A in, but I really wanted the information. And so I kind of had to weigh, either get the information or get the distinction. And I chose the information. So um, yeah, I did, I did pretty well from you know straight Fs to summa cum laude. And my summa cum laude had to, was, was part of the reason that was so low was I was counteracting some early courses that I had taken and didn't do so well in. So they, they kind of held me down a little bit, but, but yeah, my goal was to do as, as much as I can and to, you know, prove myself, I guess I really needed to prove that I was worthy. Well, was it, were you trying to prove it to other people or to yourself? Mostly to myself, although um, I needed to prove it to myself. I, I I don't know that that's the way I want to say it. I should have believed it and I didn't. So I was trying to prove it to myself more than anything. You know, when I started college, I started, I was doing home daycare and I was just taking a few classes to help me get some credits so that I could get paid more. And that's all I was doing. I wasn't going to get a degree. And I got far enough and I said, and that's how I got the the bad grades, you know, the the, the ones that held me back. And I got, got far enough. And I thought, well, you know, I'm just a couple classes away from an associate's degree. I'll get the associate's degree. And then that was supposed to stop there. 
and I kept on with the kids. And then um, when my kids went to school, I went in and I thought that's when I went back to school and I signed up and said, you know, tomorrow I got to start. Anyways, um, I thought, well, I'll just get a bachelor's degree. I, if I can do these, so maybe I can do this. Maybe I can do this. So I went through my bachelor's and my grades were so good. And I thought, well, maybe I'll just get a master's degree. And so <laughs> I was just kind of building up the confidence is really what was happening. You know, I, if I had started, walked into the office and said, I want a master's degree, I would have never done that because I didn't think it was possible. I was told I was not college material. I didn't think I was the smart one. You know, um, I was the pretty one. My sister was the smart one. So I didn't really think I was smart. I didn't think I was capable of doing that. And then it just kept building and building. And I thought, well, why can't I go one more step? Why can't I go one more step? And this is what's really important about success. Sometimes it's the baby steps, you know, and you build on those baby steps. And before you know it, you've, you've walked a mile, you know. I actually um, have a uh, Facebook group I started for uh, creative people in Baldwin mm -hmm. County called Creatives of Baldwin County. And I put a post on there and I'm sure I stole this quote from somebody, but I said, incremental goals are the key to huge success. And, and that sounds exactly what you did. You were like, I'm just going to take a couple classes to up my, my uh, salary. And yeah. then once you achieve that goal, you said, oh, well, I did that. Might as well get an associate's. And, and you did that exact thing. You set incremental goals for yourself mm -hmm. to achieve a giant goal. And you did it almost by accident. Oh, it was completely by accident. <laughs> it was, actually, I had been into grad school for a year and my, my advisor says, Gina, you know, you really have to take the GRE. And I said, why? And he says, because it proves that you're capable of getting, you know, of succeeding in grad school. I said, but I'm getting A's. Why do right. I need to take this test? It's going to cost me money I don't have to tell you that I can do it. He says, Gina, if you don't, we're going to kick you out of grad school. I said, okay, well, I took the test. I failed. All right, darn it. So I took the test again. I failed. All right, darn it. And I mean, I studied hard, but this is not really a test you can study for. It's, it's analogies and just weird stuff that doesn't make any sense to me. But so the third time I didn't study, I said, you know what, just go in and meditate. That's it. I sat in my car before the test. I meditated. I took the test. I got my score. I'm like, oh, I passed. <laughs> and so it was completely by accident. Every bit of it was, but um you know, it, again, incremental steps. Yes. I, I learned that I could do a lot more than I thought I was capable of doing, you know? So. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, not only did you accidentally your way into a double masters, you did it while completely going against what everyone else would say is the right path, which is studying for a test. And, and you did it after multiple failures. I mean, you embodied mm -hmm. almost every every aspect of success during during this time. You you set incremental goals, achieved them, you achieved huge success, you believed in yourself, you bucked the norms and found your own way to do things. Like and, and in the beginning of this call, you were surprised and flattered whenever someone called you amazing. Like that yeah. is incredible. A lot of people they fail once and give up. And a lot of people, you know, they they find a challenge that doesn't suit their strengths and they move on. And, and then a lot of people, you know, they definitely don't set incremental goals. And then once they struggle with those, they give up on the big goal they had in the beginning. And you came in with no big goal. 
and and no methods and and just succeeded like you just said this is the way that i think works for me and and it worked for you yeah yeah so well, and that's that's what i'm trying to do in in the business you know this is the success podcast um but what i'm trying to do you know, I don't know that I can do it. I know that I can do it, but I, that's the thing. It's just, and it keeps building on. And the, the, one of the struggles I'm having is to reel myself back because there's so much I want to do, but I want to take these giant leaps and it needs to be these baby steps. It really needs to be a lot smaller than what I want to do. But I just, I just, uh, you know, if I raise my kids in an in an I can world, and I was not raised in an I can world, um, you know, my mom was working class, and she said, "Gina, we're not business people. You can't start your own business." You know, but um, I just I can I can do whatever it is I need to do. You know, yeah. and we all can. That's the thing. Henry Ford says, "Whether you think you can or whether you think you can't, you're right." Right. You know that's it right there. And I've kind of, it's taken me a while to get to that, but yeah, I, I, I feel like I can. I mean, as far as what you're trying to do now and feeling like you can't do it, I mean, just all I would say to that is look back on everything else you thought you couldn't do. Look right. back on, on, on going to college to take a couple of courses and then leaving with a double masters, right. something, which by the way, I, I know very few people that have a single master's degree. So you have a double master's and you're doubting yourself after all of this. Yeah. And then after you got your master's, you became an actual college professor yourself too, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. I taught for about, um, I think about seven, seven years, five years. No, I taught for about 15 years. I'm sorry. I think I did the math at one point and it was 15 years. I taught for a couple of years in grad school as an undergrad. Um, and then I went on to, and that was at the four-year college, and I went on to teach at the community college and really found my people at the community college. Those were people like me who were told that they weren't college material. You know, they were from poor, poor families. I um, taught in Stockton in California, which is a really diverse community. Um, there were some gang issues in the community. I had every, you know, in my class from African-Americans um, to Asians to, I taught at one point with a multicultural um, language, multicultural language school. Um, and that what that really was, was um, families in the Middle Eastern countries and in, in um, Asian countries sent their children over to get to get into American colleges, but before they could, they had, had to pass the people. Um, and so my goal was to teach them enough English to get them to pass the people. Um, and so I did that for a while. And then uh, I ended up teaching in, at a couple of community colleges. Um, did the, the freeway flyer thing. I taught um, two different colleges. 50 miles in opposite directions from my home and just oh. kind of did, yeah, taught two days at one campus, two days at another campus. And again, I was still marketing myself. So then I ended up um, being on um, committees and stuff and would have to go to both campuses on some days. So to do the committee work. You stay busy. You stayed busy the whole yeah. time. 
Yeah. And then uh, how did you move away from teaching or what caused that or what, what went on there? Well, I started drinking that, um, I, all right, so we're going to back up again. Um, at one <laughs> point, when I graduated, when, when I got my degree, I was almost 300 pounds. Oh. Um, yeah, I was almost 300 pounds. And within the same month of graduating, I decided to have gastric bypass to lose the weight. Okay. And so I graduated and had gastric bypass all in the same month. And then over the next year, I lost 140 pounds and, um, and I was hitting, um, midlife and, um, and I was just really lonely and I was really sad and I was really, you know, I wasn't in a good place. Um, and this was in 2007 when the, you know, once by the time I'd lost the weight and, and started I was doing some more teaching and the economy hit bad and I was really really working hard to get a full-time position that was my final goal was a full-time position with the campus well that and writing a book um, and I was working on the book but um, I wanted full-time and when the economy hit in 2007 I was there was a freeze on on hiring and and I was told that there would be no full-time positions for 15 years and that really kind of blew my dreams and my goals. Um, so there was a lot going on, some marriage problems, and um, and I started drinking. And I kind of forgot what the question was. <laughs> Just uh, the you, that was the answer was uh, I asked you how you moved away from being a professor. Oh, yeah. And I, yeah, yeah, the drinking kind of blew things, but it wasn't and the marriage ended and there was a divorce and, and I just really felt this disillusion with teaching and with what was happening. And my kids had moved to Alabama and um, in 2012, I decided to give it all up and move to Alabama so I could be closer to them. And so um, when I got back to Alabama, I just didn't actively pursue teaching um is that when you started being a professional clown and aerobics teacher <laughs> no no that was back when I was 300 pounds oh, okay yeah. <laughs> yeah that was while I was raising kids it was my attempt my um yeah my attempt at being able to work in my own hours so that I could be home for the kids when they needed me you know, or be able to take the kids where I needed to go and and yes I weighed 300 pounds when I did it that says um, a lot about how packed full of activity your life has been to where we just managed to dance right over the professional clown aerobic instructor era. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, just breeze right by it. It was fun, though. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm the last day I taught and the last I think I might have clowned once or twice after this, but the last day I taught aerobics, it's when I went to school full time and I was teaching for the senior citizens at the um, mall. I taught the mall walk for the senior citizens and I taught water aerobics um, at, at a gym and step aerobics at a gym. But I went to this, they'd asked me to come in costume and I thought, all right. I'll come in costume. So I got my clown costume on and I went to the mall and I taught my aerobics class for the senior citizen in full on clown costume. And um, that was the last aerobics class I taught. They loved it. It was great. Um, it was a lot of fun for me. 
I'd never done it in clown. I sweated a little bit of the makeup off, but um, How it was you, interesting. Was it just a normal aerobics class for your last one? Because I couldn't imagine you doing water aerobics in full clown get up. No, no, I, I, well, the makeup's thick enough. I probably could have done it <laughs> in a full clown get up, but no, that was a, um, that was a senior citizens group at the mall, and and it was actually a mild aerobics course. Um, okay because it was senior citizens it wasn't like we were doing jumping jacks and and somersaults or anything you know so it was just a movement kind of thing but still um yeah it was full count and and the, the the wig and the makeup that was more hot than anything else it was you know than than exercise sweat but right i'm sorry if that sidetracked your story a minute ago it's just i i, I remembered that from your list of professions and i was like we've got to talk about professional clown at some point that has got to come up and it was just getting to the point where I knew you definitely weren't in a clown state of mind anymore. So I was like, when were you a clown? Yeah. But yeah, now yeah. we know. Um, it, it's a fun thing to talk about, you know, and right. it's one of those things I bet you didn't know, you know, right. especially since I, I can really be intense. I bet you didn't know I was a professional clown and they're like, really, how do you do that? You know, well, it's fun playing with kids, you know? Right. But, you can uh, actually trick them into believing a lot of stuff <laughs> when you, in costume. Yes, your nose does beat, you know. <laughs> you just haven't squeezed it the right way. It takes a clown to do that. Mm -hmm. And then you have another one behind your back and you squeeze their nose and mess yeah. their whole entire perspective up. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, how old were you whenever you... Uh, moved away from teaching and, and the drinking started, if you don't mind me asking. I am 52 now, and I've been in Alabama. I think I did the math. It was nine years. It's been nine years. So that's when I quit teaching. Um, I, I um, had been drinking for about four or five years prior to moving here. So, and so you were... I mean, not to get too deep into your personal business here, but you were actually struggling with the alcoholism while you were teaching. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't. I, yeah, a little bit. I mean, I, there were a couple of days I went to class hungover. Um, I was actually tending bar as well. Um, I had three kids I was raising. Two of them were mine and then one was a foster daughter and um, newly single. And so I was tending bar till two o'clock in the morning. And, um, and teaching some days at seven o'clock in the morning. And, um, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't able to get drunk at the bar, but definitely there were times when, you know, we did a couple shots. And so there was no sleep. And um, I had been in a um, abusive relationship and he was, you know, doing more than I had any idea he was doing. We did a little too much drinking. I didn't do all that he did I didn't even know he was doing it that's what you know ended the relationship but there was some abuse going on there and um so I had drank some more because of that I remember one Christmas I found a lump in my breast and um I spent that Christmas Eve to the next day with a bottle of vodka on the bathroom floor mm. because I you know I thought I am finally I finally look good where I'm not ashamed to be seen in public and I, and I'm going to lose my breast, you mm. know, and, and that was kind of a little devastating. It was nothing. It ended up being a, um, 
calcium deposit. So it was really nothing. But but yeah, that's where the alcohol was going is this little bitty lump causes me to drink a bottle of vodka on Christmas Eve on the bathroom floor and wake up, you know. So yeah, I was already having some issues with alcohol. Um, but you know, you don't always want to, you don't ever want to admit you got a problem, you know, and I don't think it was a full blown problem, although it had caused problems in my life, you know, at that point, it was probably the main reason for the divorce. You know, right. We were already having some problems, but had I not been drinking through those problems, I might've been able to resolve them with a little more sanity, you right. know? So, so yeah, there was that going on. And then, um, my kids moved to Alabama on like June 12th and I spent a whole year living by myself in an apartment and just completely depressed, completely depressed. I wasn't even drinking as much as I was just depressed. I'd come home from teaching a class, take my clothes off and crawl in bed and be in bed till the next time it came time to teach. And, and I would go out, um, but I was so depressed that it would take me to 11 to get up the energy to get dressed to go out. Right. But I, I knew I needed to get out of the house. So I'd go out and get drunk, come back, have a hangover the next day. You know, um, we actually just recently interviewed on our podcast, the taxi driver that would get me from home to the bar and from the bar back home during that time. And she was telling stories and I'd be like, no, I don't remember any of that. I was blackout drunk during those mm. times, you know, just glad to be safe home the next day when I arrived and not really remember how I arrived. Except to that me, I personally, that's one of the most terrifying aspects of addiction that a lot of people like don't seem to talk about, in my opinion, or at least I don't hear about it a whole lot. And that's that's the time that you lose, like straight up days months years of your life that you just can't remember yeah like something yeah. about that because we only get such a short lifetime to begin with something about that idea of just not remembering whole weeks days months years of my life just startles the shit out of me yeah but when you're depressed and feeling like a loser and feeling so much shame you don't want to remember those things you know, right. all the things I ruined in my life, I'd gone from this, this professor, my dream job, this married woman with, you know, I had two and a half acres, I raised goats, I had great kids, I, and I ruined it all. I didn't want to remember any of that stuff, you know, and, and, and I remember after the divorce, I, I was with that person that I was telling you I was in an abusive relationship. And I remember thinking, it's okay, I need to punish myself for a while. This relationship is going to resolve, it's going to kind of absolve mm. me from the crap that I did. And it sucks, but you know what, I deserve this. And, and it really had nothing to do with him, but I deserve this. And I just continued to, you know, demolish my life. Oh, I don't think that anyone... I mean, and this isn't just you, this is to anyone who happens to listen that might be or has been or has that same mentality of, oh, well, I deserve this abuse. You don't. No one does. No one ever does. Like, the abuse is the fault of the abuser. And usually the abuser is just as traumatized as the abuse victim is. But that doesn't justify it. That's just right. the motivation behind it, I guess, is the best way to put it. There's right. no good reason to 
cause pain to another person, especially someone you claim to love, but no one deserves to be treated that way. And, and that mentality is a sign that something else needs to change. Cause from what I've heard, it doesn't sound like, and it sounds like you still like maybe almost kind of believe you ruined a lot of the stuff in your life. I don't think you did. I think that a couple of bad decisions might have, I think that a bad way of dealing with things might have. Uh, and, and that's, that's a lesson that a lot of people need to take is, you don't ruin your life. A bad decision does. And, and usually your life isn't even really ruined. It's just damaged or has gone off track for the time. And that's exactly it. You know, it's, it wasn't ruined forever, you know, and, and as a, as a sober coach, that's kind of one of the things that I want to get, get out to, you know, the people that I work with is that you can recover your life. I'm doing great. I'm happy. I've lost a lot of things. Um, and, and there was a time when I felt like I needed to punish myself for the mistakes that I had made for the things that I had done. And that is very much the wrong mentality, but it's often the mentality we get into, you know, but that doesn't mean my life is over. It doesn't mean I can't repair the past and, and get back, you know, back on track. It doesn't mean that I'm a horrible person. I was using the only tools that I knew how to use at the time to get me through a very difficult time in my life you know? Right. And, um, and so much has happened since I, since I got sober, I've been sober three years and I'm, you know, I've lost, I lost my dad, my dad, uh, my stepdad, he was with us, I think 26, maybe more 26 years since I was 15. And he was the, the, the main dad, you know, the one that I remember, the one that cared for me. And he passed away in February of this year. And I did it completely sober and um, I handled it very well, you know, and, and I'm just really proud of myself. And, and that's, that's where we can get to once we start repairing our lives. But I do have to say that I do have to take responsibility for the things that I did. You know, if I don't take responsibility for them, I can't repair them. Right. You know, and and that was what I was trying. I I mean, I wasn't, uh, right. You know, I'm not saying that you were saying I was trying to say this, but I wasn't trying to say that people shouldn't take responsibility for those actions because it is, a, it is an action or a bad decision that you made. But what what I, more of what I was trying to say is that people shouldn't let their bad decisions, bad actions and bad choices define them. Right. Because right. for one, anyone that cares about you, like other people might define you by them, like a, a stranger you just met or someone you hurt at that time. But the people who care about you won't define you by your bad decisions. And and the people who you meet after that aren't going to know. So it's like, if you walk around carrying the weight of something that you did two, three, four, five years ago, and you meet a whole new group of people, you end up in a wholly wholly different place in life, and you're still carrying that weight, you're carrying a weight that no one else can see. You're carrying the scar of something that no one else know you ever got hurt by, like, and, and it's and it's and that alone is, is proof that it's not who you are, because you can meet other people who will see the beauty in you again. And you'll meet other people who you have a positive impact on, even if you hurt people in your past. And, and, and that's something that I know a lot of people do is they make a bad decision or two or three and they have real consequences and they let that become them. They're like, oh, well, I cheated on my wife, so I'm nothing but a good for nothing cheater for the rest of my life. Right, right. I hit my son one time whenever I came home drunk. So I'm an abusive father and will be for the rest of my life. Like, yeah, you did that. 
own up to it, apologize for it, do whatever it takes and understand that you might not be forgiven, but don't let it become you. Right. Right. Because that's, that's, that's only going to per, uh, prop. What's the right word. That's only going to make you do it again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, or want to get drunk to forget that you've done it in the first place. Right. You know, yeah. in other words, yeah. no matter how you handle it, if you continue to blame yourself and define yourself by your bad decisions, you're going to keep making bad decisions. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so you got sober after, or you've been sober for three years now after was mm-hmm. that like counting the time you were drinking before you moved to Alabama. That's like eight years, eight, eight nine years you were drinking. Um, probably about 10 years. I 10 was years. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's and see. Then, yeah. Probably about 10 years. So 10 years and you got sober. So, so Mm -hmm. we talked about what motivated you to get, to start drinking, you know, with the life problems and the divorce and the, and the struggles, what motivated you to stop? Um, partially my son's death, but not at first, Uh, after my son passed, I, I actually started drinking a lot more. Um, I started taking some sleeping pills because I, I didn't, I couldn't handle going to sleep at night. I just wanted to close my eyes and be asleep. You know, that quiet time was a hard time for me. Um, so I spent seven months after he died um, drinking, probably the heaviest in my life. And um, and I'd even fallen down a set of stairs at one point, busted a couple ribs and punctured my spleen um, and spent three days in the hospital. And when I got out of the hospital, I continued to drink more. And then um, on on September 2nd, I went to my granddaughter's birthday party and um, some things got said um, that did not make me happy. And at one point, my my trying to maintain anonymity here, so I won't say who, who did it. Um, but at one point, someone said to me, come to a meeting. And I said, okay. I mean, I knew I needed help. I didn't even hesitate. I said, okay. And then the things got said, I got angry, left, went and got drunk and called my daughter and said, tell so-and-so that I'm not going to the meeting. Um, And then I woke up the next morning, just scared, just really scared. This is what my life is about. This is what it's going to be. No, I no. And um, I called my daughter and I said, you know, I need you to take me to my car. I have to go to that meeting. I have to get sober and I'm done. And I promise. And I have not had a drink since I attended the meeting and I unloaded. I unloaded so much. Um, everyone in the meeting was in tears. I didn't mean for them to be in tears. I I had no control over what I was saying. I was still hung over from the night before. Um, but I load, unloaded so much of the my own blame um, and shame of my son's death and how much I was hurt. And and then that was it. You know, I had to get I had to get out of the hungover. It took me about three days to detox. And um, I someone challenged me to 90 meetings in 90 days. And I said, OK, heard about <laughs> give that. me a challenge and I'm going to do it. So I can't huh? remember. I've heard that uh, 90 meetings in 90 days challenge before. I can't remember where I heard it, but I've, I have heard about uh, that's pretty that's a pretty popular thing that people do. Yeah. Yeah. Does that does that do you think that that works that kind of intensive sudden in the deep end type of approach to it or do you think that for most people they should take it a meeting at a time? It 
it does a lot of things. Um, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to say this. It, it does a lot of things that need to happen. It, you know, one of the things a lot of people get obsessed about alcohol because they still want to drink. And so, you know, everything you do is, oh, I could have, no, I can't have a drink. Oh, well, where's that? No, I can't have a drink. And so you become really obsessed with the alcohol. Saturday night, what do I do if I can't drink? Well, I go to a meeting, you know, um, so it kind of takes my mind out of it. It gets you involved in a community, which you really need, really need to be part of a community. It gets you in a place where you can listen to other people tell their stories and where you can tell your story if you're willing to do it. A lot of people at first aren't because there's a lot of shame. But when you start hearing other people's story, it removes the shame from from yourself, you know, um, and some people say that, you know, they don't like the 12 step groups because they're, you know, it's like brainwashing. Well, yeah, it's like brainwashing. You need to be thinking a different way. Alcohol is not your only solution. There are other ways to handle it. And you need to understand that there is a different way to think. And there's a lot of things that I learned and, you know, used tending the meetings. Um, one of the biggest things is the, the serenity prayer. And, and I discovered how much power that serenity prayer gave me. And, and I use it methodically, really, is when, you know, when I have a situation that I, that I can't control, I said, you know, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I can't control. Can I control this situation? If the answer is no, you know, then the next part is the courage to change the things I can. What can I change about this situation? And then, of course, um, the the wisdom to know the difference. And, and those it's those stupid little things, those stupid little sayings <laughs> that give you tools to make decisions, better decisions. You know, and that one that one in particular gave me power because it it helped me stop and think there's parts of this I have no control of. So just let it go. And there's parts of this that I can change, focus on that. And that's what happens when you go to 90 meetings in 90 days is you start to restructure your brain and your thoughts, thought patterns. And I don't know that it works for everyone. It definitely worked for me. And, and I think it's less about the 90 meetings in 90 days and more about the willingness to change those thought patterns. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I hear other people do the 90 and 90 and, and they still relapse and they still, you know, have problems. So I don't know. It's how far you're willing to go with the 90 and 90. Yeah. Like I said earlier, it all really comes down to like the person it's their choice, you know, within all things, really. It, yeah. it goes back to another saying, uh, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Mm-hmm. I guess in this case, you can lead a horse to a desert, but you can't make it stop drinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's it right there. Yeah. But it's like, until someone makes a decision that they want it until someone like you did, you called your daughter and you said, I'm done. Like, I don't, yeah. I don't even want to do this anymore. A lot of people want to quit, but they also want to keep drinking. Like I want, I want to not be drunk all the time anymore, but I don't want to stop drinking. So it's like, they get caught up in that paradox and it's like trying to do really well at two jobs at the exact same time that you just can't, Yeah, yeah. you're going to, you're going to mess up both really bad. And, and that, I think that's where a lot of people get caught up, especially with addiction is they want to quit, but they don't want to quit. Right. Right. Oh, I wanted help so bad. 
there was one point after my son passed when I was doing the heaviest of my drinking that I really just wished someone would put me in a mental institution. I literally wished someone would put me in a mental institution because I wanted the help. I wanted to quit. I didn't know how to quit. I didn't even want to live, you know, I mean, but you did. That was my son. I didn't want to live. I really would have rather just taken a lot of sleeping pills, but I didn't have the courage to do that either. So right. I just kept drinking, but I wanted help. Um, the closest I really got to it was that person at my granddaughter's birthday party saying, go with me to a meeting. You right. know, that was the closest help I got. We want help, especially when we reach a point where we realize that this isn't working, that you know, we're doing more damage than good, but we don't know how to quit. But we you, want, but we don't want. Right. You right. Uh, but you did it. You you quit or you, you, well, you said that you, before the call, you said that you never really quit. You're always an alcoholic. You're just in recovery from that point right. forward. So, so you're in recovery now for a very long time, which is a huge Forever. success. Yeah. Forever. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so I want to say congratulations. Great job. That is a success that not a whole lot of people in this world. And from what the statistics that I've read, alcohol and nicotine are the two most common addictions that people quit. And then also the two most common that they relapse on. Right. So I just want to say congratulations, because that is a huge achievement, a huge accomplishment, no matter what else has, quote unquote, gone wrong for you in life whatever happened, it led you down that path. And, and it was an education to the need to quit. And, and you did it, you rose to the challenge, and you crushed it. Yeah. So congratulations. Uh, we're actually over my time limit. So, Sorry. Yeah, if you wanted to take a minute, uh, let people know about your podcast. And, and if you want to talk about your book or anything else like that, go ahead and give people a shout out, let them know where they can find you. All right. Well, we're still working on the book, so we'll hold that one off. Our podcast is Back Porch Chats, Conversations of Grace, Hope, and Recovery. We have um, have had a few professionals on talking on the podcast. Vince and me um, are the host, and there's been a few episodes of just Vince and I talking about different parts, points of recovery. Um, but we also talk about trauma and um and childhood abuse and some different things there. And we've had a number of um, recovering alcoholics and addicts as well on the show, um, telling their stories of grace, hope and recovery. And um, so there we have that. And that's mostly just to get the message out to people who need to listen and a resource for people to hear other people's stories or to get um, help when they want it. Um, the other thing I'm doing is is uh, now sober coach, and um, I've just got the website built at the moment. Although for some reason it's not coming on, I don't know what that what's going on with that. I'll have to check that out. But now sober coach, and that is my way to give back. One of the things that happened um, about ten days into recovery, I went to a meeting and it hit me that um, I could either cry over the mistakes I've made and the mess I've made in my life. And I can cry over my son's loss, which I do all the time, by the way. But, you know, I can cry over that or I can turn it into a gift. And, um, you know, the death of my son and the mistakes I made and the alcoholism and everything I've been through has been a gift that I can use to help other people. And so in order to make sense of all of that, that's what I'm doing with Now Sober Coach is 
is providing um, help wherever I can to women who need um, and want to recover after after addiction or um, loss or trauma or you know whatever whatever it is they need to recover from. And so I do some private coaching, but I'm also working on building a membership so that we can build a community and learn techniques and things that we need to to get on the right path to better our lives and and um, you know for other people to to find what I found, which is a really damn good life. So um, <laughs> I found a lot of joy in my life. There's a lot to be grateful for. So that's what I do. How do they reach you about that? They can go to now sober coach. Um, oh, right, com. right, right. Yeah. Or they can email me at Gina at now sober um, I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So you can find me now sober on Facebook or Gina Fox on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn, all three of them really. So by the way, because I was confused by this, that is Gina spelled J E A N N A. Thank you. Yes. I'm, I was thinking I probably should say that and then totally forgot <laughs> yeah, to say that, but yeah, yeah. It's J E A N N A. Um, I'm named after my grandma Jean. So think <laughs> of jeans, the pants. All right. Well, that has been an absolute pleasure talking with you. I learned a lot. Uh, I really enjoyed listening to all this. Uh, but yeah, that's going to be it for today, everybody. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode of Real with O'Neill.